also read this beautiful psalm, Psalm 46, which is the text of our message this morning. And it will be, God is our refuge and strength. So let us read with faith and with praise to our only, unique, one of a kind, triune God. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength. To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Elamoth, a song, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters war and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams may glad the city of God, the holy habitations of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord how he has brought the desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let us pray. Father, what a beautiful song this is. It speaks for itself. In fact, you speak in this psalm directly to us, especially in verses 10 and 11. Peace still and know that I am God. You are directly speaking to us here. So open our, our ears so that we can truly listen to, to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How do you deal with suffering? This psalm, I think, will teach us how to cope with suffering with our God in three ways. To deal with suffering with our God in three ways. First, look at your present. Second, look back at your past. And third, look to your future. Look at your present. Look back at your past and look to your future. 
So let us see the first one, how can we deal with suffering with God, looking at our present, verses 1 through 3 in this incredible psalm. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. He's our refuge. See, it begins not God was our refuge or even God will be our refuge, but it says God is our refuge right now in the present. And that is why I think you should look at your present and see God there because he is our refuge. It means that he is our shelter, our protection. If there is a storm or a war, and you don't have anywhere else to go, you have your God as your protection. Because also it says in verse 1 that he is our strength. He is the source of strength, where we are weak. And when we put both words together, refuge and strength, you have a fortress. And that is why he is our help. Because he, provide, he provides something that you cannot do for yourself. That's the same word that you find in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. When Israel could not defeat the Philistines, God gave, gave them the deliverance, something that they could not do by themselves. That's why it was called Ebenezer, stone of help. The Lord helped us. And in the sense of he's been our deliverer, our redeemer, and our salvation. It's not giving a mere, mere hand. Not merely to give a hand to us, but he is completely saving us. That's what help means here. But help for what? For trouble, right? He's a very present help in trouble. And the sense of trouble here is of a confinement. It's a risk of life where it seems there's no way out. And what happens in our hearts when you, in distress, there's no way out? Anxiety, right? Distress. If there is a siege of enemies surrounding you and there's no escape, yes, that's a result. You become anxious and distressed. And probably the historical context of this trouble here is the siege of Sennacherib around Jerusalem in 701 B.C. All 45 cities of Judah had already been besieged at that time. Assyria even mocks Israel, mocks Judah, saying, Assyrians saying, I would lend you, Judah, 2,000 horses, and you wouldn't have a chance against us. 185,000 Soldiers besieged Jerusalem. No way out, no escape. But in our text, what kind of trouble is this? 
Well, I think it's described in verses 2 and 3. If you go to your text, it says, Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved in the heart of the sea, though its waters war and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. You see what kind of trouble this is? It's not describing a local tsunami. No. It's not describing a family disaster. No. It's not even describing an epidemic of a virus. No, the author here is describing a worst-case scenario, a decreation of the whole planet, as you see in verse 2. A planet that's been unmade. It's a total chaos. It's an image of universal and cosmic calamity, a worldwide catastrophe, where the most secure things like mountains are shaking and going into the sea like a global tsunami. And when you read verse 1 with verse 2 and 3 together and look at your present and see God there as your refuge, God there as your strength, God there as your help in this kind of catastrophe, when you see him there at your present condition like that, even if the entire globe is disintegrating before our own eyes, even if the world is falling apart, because you look at your present and see God there, because he is your refuge and strength, you will not fear. That's what the text is saying. Even if everything gets from bad to worse, a total chaos, God not was, God not will be, but God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in an ending world. That is why the text says, we will not fear. A couple of applications when you hear and understand this first point. First is that we need to be realistic that our problems can get worse. Many times when we have a cancer, when we have any problems in our families, for us, and that's not wrong by itself, to soothe our pain or at least to comfort us, we think, oh, it'll be okay. It'll be all right. And many times the arrows of affliction, they come because we... Sometimes with that, try to deceive ourselves that it will be okay. And we try to hide, to find something to protect us, but it's too late. Sometimes, yes, we need to be realistic. Yes, things can get worse so that we can get ready. I remember here the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 12 of his book that God talked to him said, do you think that's hard for you to run with men? What if you run 
with horses, Jeremiah? You think it's hard for you to deal with the nation of Israel? What about if your dear ones in your family are against you? Yes, we need to be realistic and to have the wisdom to be realistic at the right time. Because the text says, even though the world gets from bad to worse, because I see you there with me, I will fear no evil. Second application. When we are in trouble, our tendency is to think that God is far away. Our tendency is to think, think that God is present only when everything is well. But this song is telling you to look at your present reality and to reason that God is present not only when everything is well, but also when everything is from bad to worse. He is a very present help, not out of trouble, not without trouble, but in trouble. He is very present help in that situation. And we need to remember that, to remind ourselves of this truth. That he is right now with us. Because that's the theme of the psalm, isn't it? You see the same truth in verse 7, the same truth in verse 11. He is with us no matter what. Third application What is your refuge? In trouble, what is your shelter? Where do you go to when you are distressed, anxious? Is it comfort that you go to? Nothing wrong with comfort, but it can be a substitute of our God. Is it work or money? Knowing that your bank account pretty good gives you security was it entertainment social media or maybe pornography and sex you had a hard time during the week and the weekend comes you go online to soothe your pain? Was it shopping, buying, gives you the relief that you are looking for? Was it loneliness to be in your room, the dark room, you don't want to see anybody? That's where you find your shelter. Or is it your fridge? Food is the way that you use to cope with your anxiety. It can be alcohol, beauty, romance, love, intellectualism. It can be your children. It can be pills. You see, none of, most of those things, there's nothing wrong. 
but they can be wrong when they are used as ultimate shelters and protection and refuge in our trouble. And maybe you have tried everything. Maybe you are this morning, you tried every kind of shelter and refuge that this world can give you, but nothing worked. Nothing worked. There's no more shelter for you than this morning. Today, God calls you. I am the one who is a very present help in your trouble. Come with me. You have to find shelter in me. It is with me that you have strength. Only I can really help you ultimately. Come with me. Look at your situation and see me there with you. Fourth application. When everything is falling apart, it's where we find freedom from our anxieties. How so? Because verse 2 says, I will fear no evil. I will fear anything. We will not fear. And anxiety is a type of fear, isn't it? There's a book written by Elizabeth Elliot. It's a, it's a novel, fiction, but based, kind of based in, his, in her own life as a missionary. And the title of that book is No Graven Image. It's a story of a nurse that uh, wanted to be a missionary with indigenous people. And she went to the Ecuador to plan everything, got his financial uh, things ready, his health, everything packed. She planned everything to the detail and went to Ecuador to bring the gospel to the unreached people. But to tell the long story short, she had to translate the Bible to their language and she could not find anyone. Finally, she found a guy called Pedro who could do it. And without the translation of the Bible, she could not go further in that mission. But then, uh, as a nurse, uh, she gave him uh, an antibiotic because he had cut his leg and she did not know that he was allergic to it. And he started to die. And in that novel, that fiction, she started to cry to the Lord, please, Lord, save him. It doesn't make any sense that you brought me here and to end like this, in a dead end. Please heal him. Please save him. Please restore him. Please do not let him die. But he did die. And the readers who read that novel said, what kind of God is that? That would never happen. But at the end of that novel, there is a phrase that uh, shook, it, it literally shook my life. 
I showed my graven image in my own heart. She said, if God was merely my accomplice, had betrayed me, if on the other hand, he was God, he had freed me. What, what she was saying was this. We, many times, we think that God is our king, he's leading our lives, he's sovereign, as Reformed people believe. But on a daily basis, we don't have God as our king and sovereign Lord, but merely as our counselor and uh, just uh, someone who gives us a hand of the plans and dreams that we have for our lives. He's just on my side to, to help me. But I am the one who is driving my life. And when things get from bad to worse, is a sign for us of God saying, it is not you who plans your life. It is not you who runs your life. It is not you who is leading you. It is me. That's why you are so anxious. That's why you fear everything. Because you don't have control of everything. It is me. And I'm not only a mere help to give you a hand. I'm not a mere counselor or accomplice for your own little kingdom. When everything is a hurricane of problems, it saves us from ourselves. It frees us and shows us that he is the one who runs everything in our life. When you look at your present reality of a hurricane of affliction, it's where you see God in control of everything and free you from because he is ultimately the one who is a refuge and a strength in our life. So we just look at our present and see God there. Secondly, let's look back at your past. You see the contrast in verse 4 with verses 2 and 3? Mountains see the earth shaking in verses 2 and 3, right? When, when you go to verse 4, it's beautiful. The city of God is unshakable. You see in verses 2 and 3, tumultuous and raging sea. Here in verse 4 and 5, a calm river of Zion makes the city of God glad. Tranquility, calmness, provision, peace, joy. But then you ask to me, a river? In Jerusalem? Well, there was a man-made spring of water to fill the pool of Shiloh so that they would have supply of water at all times. And when the city was being besieged, they would have water. But it's talking about here a natural river. And I think in verse 4, what the author is doing is evoking the Garden of Eden in creation in the past that had a river of which the temple was a prototype or replica of the presence of God in paradise at the beginning of the world. 
He's making us to think back at the beginning of creation. But then in verse 4, I mean in verse 5, it says that uh, God is the midst of her there in the city, in the temple. She, she shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. And here's another reference to the past. For you to look back at your past. Because it says God will help, which is the same idea of verse 1. Actually, the same word, which is uh, a verb here. Is our help in, the pres- in, the, in trouble? And he will help. When? Right early. Right? Or at the turning of the morning. That's a very special phrase. At the turning of the morning. That reminds us again, creation, right? Darkness, light. But I think specifically the author is making us to remember another siege. Mountains on both sides, the back of Israel, the army of Egypt, in front of them, a huge Sea, the Red Sea. No way out. That's a trouble. But then, if you go and see that at home in Exodus chapter 14, verse 27, when there was no escape at that moment in Israel history, God, at the turning of the morning, at done, Exodus 14, 27, 27, God opened up the sea. They passed through dry, dry ground. And then when the Egyptians tried to do the same, boom. Delivery came. Deliverance came. At the turning of the morning. Remember your past, Israel. How I saved you. And apply that truth for now. And in verse 6, you see the same truth to remember the past. His voice melts the earth. The nations are against God. And I think uh, in verse 2 and 3 about the sea roaming and raging. It's a metaphor of the nations and the kingdoms against God and Israel. And it says here, with the word of God, he melts the earth. He destroys and defeats all of them. And here again, it's a reminder of the past, of Exodus 15, 15, of the song of Moses, where it says God melts the Canaanites. It's the same expression of the past. And that is why it says in verse 7, That God is with us. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. You see what the author of the psalm is doing? Look back at your past, Israel. And apply that truth of my redemption, of my salvation, to your present condition. That I'm with you in the temple. Where the river represents peace and tranquility and joy because of my presence with you. Apply the past 
to your first reality. Remember your past. Look back at your past. That's what we do, right? I think many people do that naturally and spontaneously. They are suffering, they are in pain, and I've heard so many times people saying, oh, oh, I remember when I'm in that situation, I remember when I was a kid, that was so good. No trouble, climbing trees, playing around. That was a good old time. Oh, that was awesome. It's applying the truth of the past, the pain of the present. And I think we should do the same. Not with your past of 30 years ago or 20 years ago or 70 years ago. I don't know. But of your past, Christian, of 2,000 years ago. To apply the past of the gospel of the cross to your reality of the present when you are going through pain. It's crucial to do that. It's essential to do that. We need to apply the past of our redemption in Christ Jesus to our present situation. To cope with pain. To deal with suffering with God. Looking back at our past of 2,000 years ago. Let me put some flesh in in the bones here with application with a guy called Greg Lucas. He has a special kid that that kid will be special for the rest of his life. And I got this from uh, one of his articles. And see how he applies of our past of 2,000 years ago to his present suffering reality. And that we may learn to do the same. Listen. Almost daily I have to physically restrain my son. It is a physical battle to change his diaper and clean his, his body. Many times while cleaning and changing him, I have been kicked in the face, bitten, smacked, clawed, or hit with flying objects. It is not all that uncommon to come away from a cleanup with a bloody lip or a new scratch. Jake is the size of small men now and stronger than most full-size men, and it takes at least two people to bathe him. I must confess that on many mornings, I leave Jake's room dejected, hurt, and emotionally drained. And many, many nights, I find myself restraining the violent resistance of a struggling boy by wrapping him in my arms against his will and gently whispering, I love you. I love you. No matter what. Most children are relational and have the ability to reciprocate affection. But what happens when the child cannot communicate love? How does the relationship between parent and child grow and thrive when the child is not relational? What bonds parent and child together when the child does not share in the affection? How do you care for someone that resists your care with violence and opposes your very presence even when your presence is for his good? The only possible way to make any sense of this kind of relationship is to experience it through the, through the truly unconditional love of God the Father. 
as I reflect on my seemingly one-sided relationship with my son, I am forced to see how it is sometimes a portrait of my own relationship with God. In the defiance of my son to be loved, cared for, and washed clean, I am shown a portrait of the cross. You see how he's applying the past to his present situation? The one-sided violence of love reveals a blurred vision of arms, subdues me with his affection, and whispers in my ear, I love you, I love you, no matter what. And in this morning, God not only whispers into your ears, but he shouts in your ears saying, look what I did for you. I did not spare my only begotten son for you. He died for you. Therefore, never, never doubt that I will love you forever, no matter your situation, your circumstances that you are going through. Look at your present. Look back to your past and apply the truths of the gospel that you dearly love and believe. He is our refuge. You cannot find that in anywhere else. But thirdly and lastly, look at your present and see God there. Look back at your past and see Christ there on the cross. And thirdly, look to your future. Verses 8 through 11. Verse 8 says, Come. Behold, he's inviting us, all of us, to behold. And the word behold here is not a common verb for seeing. Actually, it's a verb used for prophets. So he's calling us to have the eyes of a prophet. He's calling us to have eternal eyes. Eyes in eternity. Come, let us have a prophetic vision, an eschatological vision. Let us have a vision of the future. See, he's coming from the past. Now he's making you to get in the car of the future and give you a travel through time for you to see what is there in your future. He says in verse 9 that he will cease all wars. He will bring a Sabbath. That's the verb for Sabbath. He will give a Sabbath of all wars. Can you believe that? We are experiencing now two wars. And even afraid of a third world war. And he says, look to your future. There will be no more wars to the end of the earth. Yes, it's about the future. To the end of the earth. And now we will end all evil and all injustice. 
Actually, all the weapons that you see here that he describes so clearly, the chariots, the bow, the spear, will all be burned and broken. And that is why in verse 10, it says, be still. And I think be still is to cease. Is for both audiences. Believers and unbelievers. Friends and enemies of God is saying, cease your struggle. Cease your war. Cease your anxiety. Be still and calm down. And I think it's so beautiful literature, isn't it? Because in verses 2 and 3, everything is in turmoil. And now it says, be still. And I think it's, be it's beautiful also because in the psalm, is the psalmist talking to us? Now is God himself in verse 10 talking to you. He changes. He speaks directly to us. Calm down, be still. Cease all struggle and know that I am God. Know that I'm exalted on all the earth because I will end all disgrace, I will end all evil, all or I will defeat all enemies. There will be no pain, no tears, no suffering. Be still and calm down that I am God. Be still and you will know that it will be complete victory. You will know that I am God, that I will be exalted among the nations, that I will be exalted in the earth. There will be no King Sennacherib, there will be no president, no emperor, no leader, no Hamas, no war in Ukraine or Russia. In the future, everyone will know I am the one who is God, I am the one who is king, I am the one who will be exalted. Therefore, Look to your future. And Christian, do you see how unique this view is of suffering when you compare to the secular view of suffering? The secular view of suffering is just fate. No pity. It's just what happens. Some, somebody will, have, will be lucky. The other will... Suffer. Just part of nature. No pity at all. How can you deal with suffering that only the life that you have is here and right now? How? Tell me. If you are not a Christian, if you are a secular person, an unbeliever, how can you cope with suffering that the only life that you have is right here and right now? That is why I think it's so much despair in our time. But here you have a unique Christian view of suffering that on one hand we must be realistic as we see in first point. That the things may get from bad to worse in this life. But on the other hand, we have the God-given right to be romantics. To be romantics. Because in the future God will end all evil and suffering. 
But the problem is that we think that we will live in this world forever. Our hearts is fixed in this fallen world. But here you see the future having significance for now. For now. New heavens and new earth are real and must be relevant for now. The future must make a difference now in the present. Look to your future of the gospel and let it make a difference now, Christian. Now. Young people. You self-deceive yourself. You, self, you, uh, you deceive yourselves thinking that your life is only here. I do the same. It's so hard. It's so supernatural. But here this morning is God by his word speaking directly to us. Say, wake up. Wake up. The future of the gospel must make a difference now. And how many times I've seen people say, I cannot think any purpose in my suffering. Why am I suffering so much? Oh, well, let me give you one. All the suffering here in this psalm, it ends at verse 10 that God will be known and exalted among the nations. That reminds me of the women in my homeland who suffered so much with so much pain. And I asked, how can they endure such pain? And they answered, because of my God who promised me that in my future there will be no pain, no tears, no more small suffering. What a testimony they are for me. Your suffering has a missionary purpose so that God will be exalted among the nations. The people will look at us and say, how can they endure such a pain? Because I have the promises of the gospel of a unique God. That's why I suffer well. That is why I suffer with a purpose, so that you can see my master in my life that sustains me, that upholds me, that guards me, that he is my refuge and strength in the time of trouble. What kind of purpose? What else do you want? What else do I want? Isn't it enough? That kind of purpose and suffering? Even though you don't understand right now, your suffering has missionary purpose to apply the future to your present situation. Oh, how much I need this. Maybe I'm the weakest here preaching to you. I always talk about this story of this little girl with spine bifida. She had a spine problems, divided in two. She could not walk. She was like eight, nine years old. She could not walk, only with crutches and wheelchair for the rest of her life. And one of the things that she loved the most is to see ballerine dancing. And one day her pastor bought tickets for her to go to a show or the best ballerines of the world. And she was so excited in the car. She said, Levi, can you believe? Isn't it amazing that I get to see the best ballerine dancing? 
Isn't that amazing? And then she said this. Levi, do you know what is more amazing? Jesus Christ is more amazing. Jesus Christ is more amazing because one day, one day, he will be back. And he will heal my legs. And the first thing that I'm going to do when I see my Christ is to dance for him. A little girl of eight and nine years old had the capacity to apply the promises of the gospel to her own reality and suffering. And I look at myself and I cannot even do that many times. What's wrong with me? How many of us have neglected such a power resource that God has provided for us in the gospel? The problem is that our future hope is not real to us. It's not even palpable. It's not even a radar of our lives. No. In order for you to grow in sanctification, in your suffering, with God, looking at your present, you must remember the gospel of the past, the gospel for the present, and the gospel promises of the future. You see the summary of the gospel in this, in this psalm? Isn't it amazing? So that we can read verse 11 and believe that the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. How can we sing this psalm? How can we sing this verse that God is with us? When everything in your life is falling apart, how can you sing with all confidence and faith that, yes, God is with me when I have a hurricane of disasters in my life? And I want you to go home with the answer through another question. Um, is the answer given by another question? Is the question of 2,000 years ago in agony, in the most painful situation that you can think of, another one On the cursed cross, cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you not my refuge right now? Why the Lord of hosts is not with me right now? My family, my friends, my disciples, all abandoned me, and even my God is silent right now, and I cannot even notice his presence with me. Where are you, God? Why am I suffering hell on this cross? He cried out. So that, dear believer, Christian, so that God could look into your eyes and say, I did not spare my own son so that, so that I would be with you forevermore. That is why you can have all the confidence, all the faith, all the hope that even if there's a trouble bigger than this world, you are confident that he is with you no matter what. 
For this reason, we can sing this song with all the conviction and all the certainty that even if things get from bad to worse, even if everything is lost, the family and the pleasure and the goods are gone. Like Luther wrote in his mighty fortress is our God. Based on this song, everything can fall apart. But God is with me right now. Because the circumstances are not my ultimate authority. They are not the ones that tell me if my God is with me or not. My ultimate authority is the Holy Scripture. And more specifically, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who felt the forsakenness of God. So that I could be with God for eternity. For this reason, the world may fall apart. I am safe in Christ. Refuge and strength. Christ is our very present help in the worst of troubles in this life. Glory be to Christ. Glory be to him alone. What an amazing, extraordinary, one-of-a-kind Savior you have. Let us pray. Father, thank you so much for Christ and for his word. Thank you for this psalm that you speak directly to us. That you will be exalted among the nations. That you will be exalted in this earth. Because of Christ. Because of his work. That is why we are here. To proclaim and to confess to you that you are everything to us. Oh Lord, we do not have this naturally. We are weak people. We are needy people. There's no way that we can practice this truth that we just heard of Psalm 46. But with the help, with the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit to open up our eyes and see and hear the screams of our Christ on that cross for us. And to have an objective truth in our hands, in our minds, to believe that no matter what happens in the world, he felt your forsakenness on that cross so that we may be certain that never, no never, you will abandon us. Oh, help us to have a bird's eye view of our lives. Have a big picture, picture because we have a big God, a huge God that we cannot find anywhere else. Therefore, can be our refuge and strength in the worst troubles of our lives. All the praises and glory to you. In Jesus' name that we pray.